Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a, a just a, a great one today and, uh, you know, for a change. And, and, and I uh, this time I mean it. I actually mean it. Look, I, I, I don't want to dwell on, on Trump, uh, but, you know, recently he said, uh, I am a cheerleader for uh, the American people as a way of excusing the two months of, of stuff he said like, uh, no, I'm not worried about a pandemic at all. We've got it all under control. Or... Uh, you know, we only have five people who are sick, and it's going to be zero pretty soon. And we all ha- we have it under control. And also, we have it under control. And we have it under control. And anyone who wants a test, get a test. And it's all under control. And it's going to disappear in April when it gets warmer. And uh, so he said, he said about that, well, you know, I'm a cheerleader. I was, I'm a cheerleader for the American people. And the thing is, I... I have never seen uh, cheerleaders at, uh, you know, any sport turn around and fire AK-47s into the crowd. Just have not not seen that. Uh, I've never seen them put down their pom-poms and start scolding the crowd for not cheering loud enough. Uh, You're a disgrace. You're never going to make it as a fan. (laughs) <laughs> and then the other thing, this this crazy thing about it isn't the role of the federal government <laughs> to actually run this thing, to uh, help the states, and they're on their own. <laughs> That's really the role of the federal government. You know, our founders wrote a constitution that basically gave all the power to the states, And that constitution uh, was called the Articles of Confederation, and it did not work. So they scrapped that, and they wrote another constitution, the framers, now called the Constitution. And that constitution created federalism and that put the federal government in charge of a lot of stuff. And I guess uh, Trump, who I know is just a voracious reader of history, just must have skipped 
He must have gone, he must have read the articles of Confederation and just went, "This is good. This is good." Now I know my role as president. <sighs> okay, uh, my guests today include Norm Ornstein. Uh, Norm is a widely uh, respected political scientist and, and commentator. He did one of these podcasts a while back on the erosion of norms in our uh, politics and government, uh, tracing back to Gingrich and Limbaugh and through the Tea Party and, and McConnell, very importantly, and uh, Trump. Uh, we called it Norm on Norms. Uh, it was a great one, you know, for a change, and uh, I'd recommend that you go back and, and listen to it. Uh, Norm has also been more than a, a scholar in his decades in D.C. He's been a, a bipartisan activist for years on good government. He worked with John McCain and Russ Feingold on campaign finance reform, a lot, just a lot of stuff like that. He's worked in a scrupulously bipartisan way until a few years ago uh, when it just became ridiculous. Norton's been one of my best friends uh, for years. Our families have been very close for a couple decades. Uh, we vacationed together uh, on the Outer Banks of uh, North Carolina one summer, um, the Franken Labrador uh, Kirby uh, came along, and he had never uh, been in the ocean before, so he ran in and he drank a lot of it. He's a lab. Uh, and later that evening, uh, the seawater came shooting out of both orifices uh, in the living room. It was in the living room that we were uh, sharing, uh, and I cleaned that up. I, I did. That was my job. And later that night, we played a board game, Taboo. It was a lot of fun, and Norm's son, Matthew, had us laughing so hard that night. He would keep repeating this phrase, in the game of taboo. <laughs> and uh, it made us all laugh. I, I had gone to uh, Matthew's bar mitzvah, Danny's too. Uh, Matthew was brilliant. He was a uh, national champion debater. Uh, went to Princeton, and um, in his mid-20s, he had a psychological break. And he remained an incredibly sweet guy, but his mental illness was incredibly painful uh, for for him and, and for Norm and Judy and Danny. And uh, we lost Matthew a few years ago, and it, it's hard to describe. It was like an accidental asphyxiation. Since then, I, I've watched Norm and Judy turn their grief into something really, really good. And uh, one of those is the subject of today's podcast. My other guest is Judge Steve Leifman, who is a uh, remarkable judge who has done a remarkable thing in Miami-Dade County. He has completely changed the way the criminal justice system deals with the mentally ill in Miami. This has been a real interest of mine. Uh, it was something I worked on when I was uh, in the Senate. Prison has become a de facto mental health system in, in the United States, and it is a disservice uh, to pretty much everyone. And 20 years ago, Judge Leifman started a prison diversion program in Miami where instead of arresting people with mental health problems and putting them in prison, 
he gets some medication and treatment and housing and jobs. And this prison diversion program has been incredibly successful. Uh, it has transformed a lot of lives. And it saved Miami a crap load of money. And uh, PBS is airing a documentary about the program. Uh, the doc is titled The Definition of Insanity, and uh, it was produced by the Matthew Harris Ornstein Foundation. And that is going to be uh, uh, on PBS Tuesday, April 14th. Uh, check your local listings. But after it airs, it's going to be on the PBS website. This movie is incredibly moving in, in a really uplifting way. And as it so happens, it, it, it touches on an aspect of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, which I have been wanting to talk about, which is how this crisis is affecting the most vulnerable people in our society. This week, we learned that there has been an outbreak of uh, COVID-19 in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Uh, social distancing is hard in jail. It's also hard if you're homeless. Uh, whether you're uh, on the street or uh, in a shelter. It, and it's hard for people at the bottom of the economic ladder. There are people who have died because they needed to work in a job where they're exposed to a lot of people. Uh, if you go to a grocery store, please thank the folks who are working there. You know, it's one thing to put yourself at risk if you're on the front lines of treating people who are sick with the virus. It's another to put yourself at risk because you desperately need the hours working at the supermarket so you and your family uh, can eat yourselves. There has been a significant uptick in domestic violence. That's something that uh, Judge Leifman uh, does attest to in this interview. Uh, I've been doing an online fundraiser for a shelter in, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, Women's Advocates. And they have been providing housing for victims of domestic violence since 1974. And usually they do a lot of fundraising in the spring at house parties. And the house party circuit is not doing very well right now. So this is, by the way, my, my fundraising mechanism here. It's a fun raffle. I, I have posted a video of me drawing a map of the United States, all 50 states, from memory. You, you can watch the video. It's fast. You will be astounded by this. This is something I can do. I can draw all 50 states from memory. I, I, I kind of teach you how to do it, but I do it fast, so you don't. it's not a thorough lesson. But if you're sheltered at home, my God, this is a productive activity <laughs> to learn, or your kids, the students can learn to do this. And if you enter the raffle, you have a, a chance, not a great chance, uh, but a chance to win the map I draw with a personalized autograph to you or um, whoever you want me to personalize it to. Now, I got to tell you, I'm really good at this. I, I'm really good at this. I have uh, demonstrated this before uh, on Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. I did this on David Letterman uh, at the Minnesota State Fair. There's a video of me doing that, but don't see that one. Go to the, this one. Uh, now, you can go to alfranken.com. That's right, the Al Franken podcast and Al Franken 
com. Pardon the egotism. But uh, you can go there and, and, and see this. And uh, if you like, uh, also donate uh, to Women's Advocates, which is this unbelievably great uh, shelter for uh, the victims of domestic violence for them and their, and their kids. Uh, and I talked to Estelle, uh, the executive director of uh, Women's Advocates, and uh, we started talking about mental health and what Americans are going through right now. And she said that a lot of Americans are feeling very vulnerable and afraid and, and trapped. And she said that's how women with abusive partners feel every day. Every day. Um, so this has been just a horrible, horrible time. And... You know, I had been hoping that I wouldn't lose a friend, and I did uh, a few days ago, a couple days ago. Hal Wilner, Hal Wilner uh, worked at SNL um, for since 1980, and Hal, he was a music producer, and on the show, he basically had the job of scoring the sketches. There's a lot of music in sketches. He also scores films. He does the, or he's the music director of the film or whatever that is. He, he knows pieces of music. So Hal uh, was the music director, or score, uh, did the scoring uh, for uh, Finding Forrester. I don't know if you remember that movie. It's uh, basically uh, Sean Connery is, uh, is J.D. Salinger. He's a recluse. And uh, somehow becomes friends with this student at this prep school in New York uh, who, and who it, it really worships him and it wants to be a writer. He's a 16-year-old kid and he's a black kid at this basically almost all-white school, a hoity-toity private school. And he gets in trouble because he has too much integrity, the kid, and he doesn't out uh, Sean Connery and uh, so now he's going to get kicked out of school is what's going to happen and Sean Connery comes to the school this is a recluse he doesn't do this kind of thing and he asks to read something at this contest there's a contest in the school for the, like the best writer and he gets up and it's like in this very very it's almost like a chapel but it's a library I guess and he reads this speech and the speech is he doesn't tell everybody but it's this kid wrote this he writes this piece of writing and so this was sort of the climax of the movie the scene and the scene is about the speech and they could not write it you know how long it takes to do a film they they Forever and ever and ever, they had a chance to write this in speech that was so inspiring that it was the climax of the movie. They couldn't write it. <laughs> they couldn't write it. So instead, he starts the speech, and then they fade him down pretty quickly, and the rest of the scene is this piece of music. 
and close-ups or shots of people being inspired. <laughs> Losing family. Losing family obliges us to find our family. Not always the family that is our blood, but the family that can become our blood. And should we have the wisdom to open our door to this new family, we will find that the wishes we once had for the father who once guided us, for the brother who once inspired us, those wishes During this whole thing, it's just shots of students and teachers being inspired. That's it. And it worked. It's crazy. It worked. And what happened is I I heard this and I asked how. I said, can you get me that piece of music? Because I give a lot of commencement speeches. And I want to... Cue that music <laughs> uh, when at a certain point in my my speech. I think it'll be funny, and so it took Hal a long time to get his hands on this. And let me read from an email he sent me: "Dear Al, hope this finds you in a good place. I and everyone I still talk to <laughs> miss you immensely." Uh, so the piece of music I've been promising you for a decade. <laughs> anyway, he he tracks that down and sends me an attachment to it. And he says, and, in caps, and I do want to invite you to something. This is the 55th anniversary of Bob Dylan's historical town hall concert, the year when he walked off the Ed Sullivan show for not letting him do the John Birch Society blues and uh, preceded the march on Washington where Dylan shared the platform with King and Belafonte. So the town hall people asked me uh, to do one of my multi-artist things, celebrating that night with different people doing everything Dylan uh, did that night. So I'm mixing all types of music and spoken word, Laurie Anderson, uh, maybe Patti Smith and Chuck D., it is soon, May 24th, Dylan's birthday. He probably will not show or be in disguise in the balcony. So I wanted to invite you to be an unannounced guest to read a lyric, uh, perhaps with atmospheric music or not. I know uh, it may not be possible, but I'm asking just in case. It would be a great and perfect event, and this audience would go dot, 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 apeshit is the word if it is in the cards let me know this was an act of friendship of his to invite me to this this is a tough time for me and uh, uh, this really um, resonated through the whole uh, SNL community he worked there from 1980 on a wonderful wonderful guy and uh uh, I wanted two, at least two degrees of separation uh, until uh, Hal, I had been 
So, um, anyway, as you can tell, my mental health could be better. <laughs> and I'm sure yours too. And so I, this is a, a special interview with this guy uh, and with Norm. Uh, what he's done with this program is, is really remarkable. And it's a, uh, it's just very inspiring, and he's one of the one of the guys doing something great. So uh, we've got a great one today, and uh, you know, for a change, and this time, I mean it. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Judge Steve Leifman, you're a county judge in, in Miami-Dade County, right? Correct. And you have um, started this program you started it 20 years ago right that's right it's basically a, a program where you take people who are mentally ill who've been arrested and instead of um, putting them in jail which right now i guess is pretty much where we put most of our our people who are who have, have mental illness is that right that's correct about 40% of all people with mental illnesses at some point will come into contact with the criminal justice system. Last year, there were about 2 million arrests involving people with these serious illnesses. And instead of that, you you have this jail diversion program. Is that That's kind of what you call it, right? Yeah, and, it, and it's both pre and post. So we've also done a lot of training of our law enforcement to educate them about these illnesses so they actually stop making the arrest up front as well. And that's crisis intervention training. That's correct. Okay, I, I think as Norm knows, and as you might, as I might have told you, uh, I've been a big champion of crisis intervention training. So, 
Why don't you explain, Judge, what, what that is? Sure. It's a 40-hour training program where we teach law enforcement officers uh, how to identify people with mental illnesses, how to de-escalate the situation so no uh, deadly force is needed, and then where to take someone as opposed to arresting them. And for us, um, we have 36 police departments, so we've been able to train all 36 uh, departments. We have over 7,500 officers now trained. And what we had not anticipated was the level of PTSD among law enforcement officers. Now, uh, this crisis intervention training, it teaches uh, police to recognize uh, when they're in a situation that involves mental illness, uh, but it uh, the crisis intervention training has also uh, revealed that a lot of them, a lot of police have uh, mental health difficulties themselves. You know, last year, sadly, more law enforcement officers died from suicide than in the line of duty. Um, you have a lot of returning vets with PTSD. You have uh, officers that get PTSD on the job. It's a physiological reaction, and they get what we call an overdose of cortisone, and it just makes their life miserable, and they have a lot of symptoms from it. And they're in a profession that really does not encourage um, treatment. And so we've actually set up a treatment program for them outside the police department, which has helped them tremendously. Also made them incredibly empathetic to what we're doing. And they really, for the most part, have stopped arresting people in my community with these serious mental illnesses. So what your program is, is to take people who very often are on the street and they get into a situation where policemen normally would arrest them and instead of arrest them, bring them in to see a judge. And you put them in a program, if they want to, uh, that's a year-long program, and, and you get them the medication and you... We get them everything. I mean, what we realized, which was interesting, is that for a lot of these individuals, by the time they do get end up getting arrested with a serious mental illness, they often suffer from serious depression on top of their serious mental illness because the system is really beating the heck out of them. And so we do everything they need for recovery. We assign them a peer. We get them transportation. We get them clothes. We get them food. We get them medication. We give them educational opportunities. We do this for both uh, all of our misdemeanor charges and for our nonviolent felony charges. And so if it's a misdemeanor, um, it's usually about six months, and we'll drop the charges, but we will continue to work with them for up to a year. And for the felony population, um, they're usually in the program for a year. And upon successful completion, we drop the charges as well. Uh, so you get them treatment and uh, jobs and, and housing. So let's talk about housing and what we're going through now. I cannot imagine what it's like for homeless people and I know a, lot, a high percentage of homeless people do have some mental health issues. What it must be like for them now in terms of exposure to, to the virus and what that looks like for even people going to homeless shelters. I don't know how you create any kind of uh, social distance in a homeless shelter. It is a very serious and difficult challenge, and it's on all kinds of levels because not only are doctors at the hospitals having difficulties getting protective equipment, the frontline folks at a mental health facility are getting none. 
And so we're having a real problem with staff even showing up to our providers. Um, and in the facilities, we've had a couple situations already where someone has tested positive. They're floridly psychotic. They are not self-quarantining themselves. And we've had to put some protocols in place to try to get them uh, treated and hospitalized if needed. But the only good thing I can say is because we are so coordinated here that we have steps that we can take and special officers that we can call in the hospital in advance so that we prepare everybody as we move someone through it. But you're right. It's very difficult for everybody involved, particularly those suffering with these illnesses. And uh, you're diverting them from jail. What is it like in jail? What is it like in prison? We actually released a lot of extra people over the last few weeks to try to keep them out, uh, particularly those that might have underlying health issues. Um, and a lot of this population, unfortunately, has diabetes, sometimes from the medication. So we really did our best to release people and are doing our best. Our, I have an amazing staff, and that's why this is so successful. Um, and they are keeping in touch with them on a daily basis and then reporting. And then we're working um, on some hearings um, with the court, either virtually or we have a one hearing a day at the courthouse that we can report. And if we need to intervene at some point, we're trying to do that. But it's very hard. So you've been doing this for 20 years. Is there a, kind of an origin story? There is. Um, you know, as a judge 20 years ago, we had no training in this area. I actually had a case where the defendant turned out to be a Harvard-educated psychiatrist who had a late onset of schizophrenia, and he didn't show up to work one day. And it turned out he had cashed in his life insurance policy he was having religious ideations, and he decided he needed to, to get to Israel. So he jumped on a plane and flew to Israel, and within a few weeks, the Israelis deported him back to Miami because he was running around naked in the Orthodox sections of Jerusalem, and he was at a risk. And he returned to Miami as a homeless man, and he ended up in my courtroom on a nothing you know, county ordinance violation. And he ended up having a full-blown psychotic episode because I wasn't trained and we didn't have anything in place. And the situation really for me was kind of a window into everything that was wrong with our system. And whether you're a judge or any type of professional, you never want to be in a situation where you're contributing to the problem. And um, as a result of this case, um, we put together a summit 20 years ago and we brought all the stakeholders to a two-day meeting and we decided uh, that we were the problem not the people with the illnesses and we needed to change what we were doing and so we you know began this amazing journey where we decided we needed to structurally change the entire system and each year we've made it a little bit better and a little bit more comprehensive and uh, we're at the point now where we're halfway done building the first of its kind mental health diversion facility um, that will be for the most acutely ill, that we haven't been able to help enough, that we can have a one-stop shop where we can offer them the services they need. And you were able to pay for that with the savings of not putting people in, in jail who don't need to be in jail. If you do the right thing, you not only improve public safety, you save a ton of money. Well, hang um, on. Let me write that down. Otherwise, I'll... Forget a sure shooting. Uh, do the right thing. And what? 
you will improve your public safety, mm -hmm. save a ton of money, and money. help people get into recovery. It's not rocket science. And so, wait, result, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying it's win-win-win, this thing? Amazing, huh? Yes, it is a win-win situation for I'm everybody skeptical. involved. But you know what? I'm going I'm to go to Norm now because I trust Norm. <laughs> I know Norm. Our family is your friends with your family. And you, this has touched you with Matthew, uh, who our family loved. Brilliant, brilliant, and hilarious, by the way, and kind and sweet, and had us had a break in his twenties, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, you know, Matthew was a brilliant young man. He was a national champion high school debater. Went to Princeton, was out in Hollywood, and having some success. And at twenty-four, had a psychotic break. Believe that God had come for him. Uh, you know, Steve talked about uh, the religious ideation, which is a common thing uh, in uh, uh, these kinds of psychotic uh, illnesses. He thought God had come from him and had taken his soul, but not his body. He didn't know why, and uh, he had to find a way to get his soul back. And part of his illness was what's called anosognosia, which is a part of the brain disease that hits a very substantial share of those with a serious illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, where you have no insight into your own illness. And if you're over 18 uh, and you don't think you're ill and you think that people, uh, including your loved ones who are trying to get you help are actually uh, taking you in a direction that would be shattering to you, uh, there's nothing that can be done in a broken system. After 10 years of horrible pain and struggle for him and for us and for all the people who were close to him, including you and your family uh, and your daughter, Thomason and Matthew were particularly close. He died accidentally in a motel room uh, of carbon monoxide poisoning driven by the uh, lack of insight that he had into his own behavior and, and illness. And we created this foundation, the Matthew Harris Ornstein Memorial Foundation to try and do something that would be uh, it's a phrase that uh, Joe Biden has used, uh, uh, trying to turn your uh, horrible tragedy uh, into uh, something good. Yeah, you have uh, really I, dedicated yourself. And in fact, the Matthew Ornstein Foundation is uh, financed and produced this film, the film that we're, uh, that's going to be on PBS on April 14th. Check your local listings. For the definition of insanity, and uh, I watched this film and uh, was, one, heartened in many ways, but also in tears. Tears very often of just being moved by the great stuff you do. And, uh, you know, Justin, the, Justin Volpe, who is someone who went through your program and is now, that's, that's what he does. He... What, what, what do you call? He's a, he's a peer specialist, and he is a remarkable young man. My goodness, he, this guy diagnosed is with a very serious mental illness, a co-occurring disorder. Was a real mess when we got to him, but because he was young and he had not been sick for a lot of years, he cognitively was still well, and we were able to get him really turned around. I performed his wedding. He was, married he has a kid he works full-time for us he owns a house 
Yep. And he was in the kind of shape you just could not imagine that people you see on the street that we walk past every day, uh, discarding them like they don't matter. And when you see someone like Justin come back and contribute and have a fulfilling life, it is the most inspiring thing and gives us all tears uh, yeah. to see him succeed and others like him. He's kind of, for people who watch this, he's kind of like the greatest person you've ever met. <laughs> yes, he's a cool guy. So, <laughs> he's funny, he's cool, he's sharp. Yeah, so <laughs> he's got the, great insight now. The point is, is that you t this is a program in which you took somebody who was mentally ill, arrested, alcoholic, drug addict, complete mess. And he's become maybe the greatest person in the world. I agree. I would say so. <laughs> and so, you know, first of all, Norm, you know that it takes a lot to get me to cry, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, I will say when I performed uh, uh, the ceremony for Al's daughter's uh, wedding, I said that the over-under on how long it would take him to cry when he got up was three seconds, and it was a little less than that. <laughs> I was part of the ceremony that you conducted, and uh, I think the over-under was three words. And it was, <laughs> and it was under. <laughs> it was two words. I yeah. started to cry. Yeah, two words. Okay. That's just the way I've always been, and I'm not yeah. ashamed of it. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful movie. And look, we have so many people in this country who are vulnerable, and right now, especially, I, I think, I hope that during this time, this horrible, horrible time, that we're going to come out the other side of it understanding what's important in life and what's important in life is our families and what's important in life is the way you treat uh, your fellow man. We've seen unbelievable courage, unbelievable compassion during this. Uh, I'm hoping, I'm not betting, <laughs> I'm hoping that as a nation we emerge from this better in the way that you quoted former Vice President Biden, and I know that, I mean, obviously he has suffered uh, losses, tremendous losses. I know, too, that when Matthew, when Matthew passed, he called you and spoke to you at great length. Yeah, Biden uh, is an amazingly empathetic man um, who suffered more than anybody should. Uh, and he called when he was vice president, uh, this was uh, January 2015, and spent an hour on the phone with me, with Judy, my wife, and Matthew's mother, with Danny, uh, Matthew's brother, and uh, followed up with a handwritten letter. In, in many ways, the quality that makes Biden stand out from so many others, um, that there is a genuine empathy for people who've suffered tragedies of any sort. I think, sadly, we're also going to see a huge uptick in serious mental illness after the pandemic for two yeah. reasons. One is, if you look at the research from the 1918 pandemic, there was a huge spike in PTSD as a result of all the trauma people are going through. And then, if you look at some of the interesting research, after every viral and flu epidemic in the U.S., there's usually a spike in schizophrenia. And one of the theories is that um, viruses may contribute uh, to the triggering of schizophrenia.
And so with the number of people getting affected, we actually may see a major increase. Okay, okay, stop, stop. I I want people to be more compassionate, not more depressed. Okay, but the point is we better start thinking about developing better systems of care or we're going to overwhelm our system now um, as people come through this. Well, yes, and I've heard Trump say the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> sorry uh, <laughs> sorry you know just... it, uh, the pandemic itself uh, hits the most vulnerable among us harder than almost anybody else and that includes the homeless population and the prison population which can't uh, practice social distancing and if you combine that with the large numbers who have a mental illness to begin with we have a, a big big problem uh, that we need to do something about immediately We're going to have this additional uh, surge in cases of people with serious mental illness. I think it's maybe the virus. It may also be uh, so much of this can be triggered by stress. And there's going to be a lot of stress uh, out there. If you think about younger people, you know, where the the danger is greatest among those between, say, 17 and 25, when the prefrontal cortex of the brain is just developing, all of those who don't know whether their college careers are going to be affected, uh, who missed out on uh, major events, uh, who have to worry about jobs. And then, of course, just people who lose their jobs or who are going to have other kinds of mental illness. And if we're not prepared to deal with it, and that means an infusion of resources. And I hope uh, expansion of programs like Judge Lifeman's, um, the society is going to suffer even more of a ripple effect here that's going to be tough. I think it's more important to give a $170 billion tax break to uh, people in the real estate business who... Well, the cruise lines, especially. Yeah. You, uh, you, our families took a cruise together. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, nice. That was Did we liked it. Yeah. Okay, yes. so let's not knock the cruise industry. They yeah. took a hit there. Uh, so, uh, But also, I mean, I am interested also in domestic violence uh and there has been an uptick in that yes we are seeing that i covered what we call bond hearings a few days ago and we had almost three times the number of cases you know there's there's going to be a lot of needs we'll be uh right back we're gonna take a break we'll be right back with uh judge steve leifman and norm ornstein uh after this message This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation, and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. 
Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about crisis intervention training, which is uh, training police uh, to recognize uh, what it looks like w- when they're encountering a situation that is fueled by mental illness. I was a champion of this. I got funding for this. I passed legislation to fund it. It's been around for a while. I I was renewing a a program that was underfunded. And I went around uh, Minnesota uh, to find out about crisis intervention training. And I went to Columbia Heights, uh, a suburb of, of the Twin Cities. And uh, they had all had crisis intervention training. I went to the sheriff's office and asked them how crisis intervention training had helped them. And the sheriff couldn't be there that day. He was at something else. But the his, the county attorney said that, oh, well, the sheriff wanted to say that the day after he took it, he didn't kill a guy he would have killed. So I said, okay, could I get a more garden variety <laughs> <laughs> instance here. And so a, a policewoman uh, said, okay, uh, well, uh, a couple months ago I was out on the street and uh, I, I heard a woman screaming. And I, I thought it must be a domestic uh, dispute or something. And I went to see and she was alone. And uh, I approached her and she went and, and started hanging from a railing that, uh, over this drop to a playground where she probably wouldn't have died, but she would have gotten very badly hurt. And because of my training, I was able to talk her off the railing and back. And I asked her what what had happened. And she said she'd been sexually abused when she was young and the abuser had left town and now had come back to town. The cops said, I think I know where I can get you help. And she connected with the local mental health services. And she said, then, like a couple days ago, I was working a a street fair, and this woman came up to me and said, you saved my life. Hmm. So I said, that's garden variety. That's the garden variety story. And she said, well, you know, I I probably, I may never holster my gun as a cop, but I use this all the time. When you're trained to be a law enforcement officer, you are taught that if someone becomes aggressive, the best way to control the situation is to become more aggressive. Well, that may work fine in some cases, but if the person has a serious mental illness, they're paranoid by definition, your increased aggression is going to turn the situation into a terrible outcome. And just by talking to people, and we teach them how and what words and the distance and the eye contact makes all the difference in the world. And it's you're right, it's a program that started several years ago in Memphis by uh, Sergeant Cochran, who's now Major Cochran. And there's now an international organization, CIT International, that trains law enforcement officers and all over the country um, and in jails. And it really makes a huge difference. Our shootings went from two a month when we started to about five or six in the last eight or nine years. Wow. And and wow. we keep a lot of data and you can see the number of police injuries versus no arrest. And we can see that you're now the cool cop in Miami Dade. If you get hit or pushed by somebody with mental illness and don't make the arrest, and you're kind of the wimp if you make an arrest of somebody with a mental illness. And the whole culture has changed. Oh, and I love they that. They get it and they understand it and they feel better. Look, you know, 
uh, I don't want to get into a whole race issue, and, and sometimes that's a contributing factor. But I think police officers' PTSD is uh, part of the biggest reason that they often shoot because they get scared. And so by teaching them these skills and giving them some insight into their own issues that may be going on, it's had a wonderful impact on their own lives and the way that they're operating as a police officer. The most stunning statistic in many ways, I mean, the shooting one is an amazing one, but Steve's program has been able to cut the number of arrests in half. And as a consequence, because, you know, if they don't shoot somebody, they might tase them or simply haul them in for resisting arrest. He's been able to close a county jail, one of the three in the county, and save the county and taxpayers $12 million a year now, six years? Seven. Uh, Is it Steve? Seven, seven years, years $84 million in savings, not to mention the incredible savings from the wrongful death uh, or, you know, wrongful assault suits uh, brought against the county. And if you close a jail now, having one fewer jail and so many fewer people in jail means that Miami-Dade is going to have fewer people in prisons, uh, including the guards and others, who will contract the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, it made it a lot easier for us to... You know, we went from about 7,000 daily jail audit to about 4,000. I mean, it was a lot easier to do what we're doing, you know, dealing with this crisis with a lower population. But out of like 92,000 mental health calls, uh, our police that we track only did 100 and only made 152 arrests. The number of arrests in Dade went from about 118,000 a year when we started to 53,000 this year. It really is remarkable. You know, it's it's interesting because when I was getting the funding, renewed funding for this, and I had to fight with Republicans who were, well, that's, you know, I don't know, that, you know, $300 million, that's a lot of money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then it was like, um, okay, I'm going to put a hold on it. I'm going to make sure this doesn't pass. Unless we cut it uh, down to two hundred million. <laughs> Former mayor of Miami, Manny Diaz, came up to me at one point and he said, "You know, Steve, I went to New York to get our bond rating reviewed, and this is when we're in the middle of great expansion downtown." And he says, "For three hours, I told him how great our economic expansion was." And he says, "After three hours, the bond reviewers had one question: How did you get your police shootings down so significantly?" They were spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on lawsuits every time there was a shooting. So they actually got their bond rating improved, saved the taxpayers another God only knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars by better rates by doing, again, the right thing. And, and so it's just you just keep doing the right thing for the right reason in this project. You're going to see amazing outcomes. Okay, guys. All right, if that's your story. You could stick with it, I guess. We're sticking yeah. with it. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's also important to note that, um, you know, it's partly just the resistance of anti-government people to spending money on anything, even if the spending is going to result in savings. Uh, the other and there's a challenge of just uh, getting people out of the usual ways in which they do business. One of the miraculous things that's happened, and it's uh, just in part because of the dynamism of Judge Leifman. Uh, prosecutors are geared up to prosecute. And uh, if you're an elected prosecutor, you know, the number of uh, trophies you have on the wall for arrests you make is uh, a big indicator. If you're a defense attorney, you want to get somebody off. 
And, uh, you know, when Steve was talking about that first case that he had with this young man who was the Harvard-educated psychiatrist, he had to let this young man go because the defense lawyer pointed out that he had no power to put this person into a long-term program. I will bet you that lawyer was exultant. She won, but she won freedom for somebody who's disappeared. And almost 20 years later, we have no idea if they're dead or alive. But Steve has been able to put the prosecutors and the uh, defenders together in common purpose and the other judges to go along and see a part of their role as redemption uh, for individuals who come in and see the people coming before them as human beings in a way that isn't necessarily natural. But to get others to move from their normal behaviors, to get people who allocate the money, elected officials who know that they're going to have to take the money out of one pot and put it into another and the ultimate savings will come, but they may not get credit for that. And they're going to get the onus of having used taxpayer money. Miraculous as this program is, it's going to be a, a dogfight to get it adopted in a lot of other places. I, you know, watching the lawyers watch an individual come back in recovery is just fascinating because they get a much greater sense, you know, going off of what Norm's talking about, you know, they think they win when they win their case, but they win at a much greater level when they see somebody get healthy again. And, and it reinforces why we do this every time someone comes back to us that's in a much healthier state. And, and you just know that, you know, they're just people who happen to be ill. And, and there's just no reason that a criminal justice system should have to be doing this when we should be doing this in a civil system and helping people get their lives back. To my listeners, if you are, are a little sick of, uh, you know, watching Trump, <laughs> maybe maybe you're not. But this is actually a feel-good movie, uh, the definition of insanity. This is um, not a lot of laughs, shall I say, but I really was moved by it and moved by the work you do uh, judge, and uh, I have been moved by the dedication norm that you have put into your work on, on mental health. And, uh, you know, the Urban Debate League is stunning what you've done there because Matthew was a, a champion debater, and you started this Urban Debate League here in, in, uh, in D.C. And to see these kids, like the first kid who won that these are very you know uh at risk i hate that term actually i don't like at risk what do you what what's what's a better term you know they're from Poor. title one schools <laughs> which means that they don't have the resources uh to be able to get uh ahead in life that others do and and so i've gone to the the debate camp and it's these kids discovering debate and they love debate. And the kid who won the first year ended up going to Harvard. Yeah, he's uh, actually he's now he's still up there. Um, uh, they have them sheltered. Uh, the university's actually done a very good job with uh, people who didn't have an easy way to get uh, back home. But this is a remarkable young man named Jonathan Collins uh, from a working class family in Prince George's County, Maryland, who's been able to really see the natural talents that he had and the drive that he had channeled in a way that would not have occurred otherwise because of debate and the life skills that you learn. And uh, 
you know, that has been an extraordinarily gratifying thing. Uh, when I, we do a, uh, we were going to do three weeks this year. We'll have to see whether we have to do a virtual debate camp with over 200 kids from fifth grade through high school. And every year at the end, we do a tournament and an award ceremony and we get five or 600 people, families come with uh, siblings, with parents, with grandparents, uh, so proud of what these kids have accomplished. And I say that, you know, I really do believe equal opportunity is a bedrock of a, a free society, but it's not equal when some people start 25 yards ahead of the starting blocks and others 25 yards behind. Okay, okay, Norm. To get people- Norm, okay, stop with the proselytizing. <laughs> you know, you know. all I can say to you guys is get a job, okay? Thank you, guys. <laughs> uh, uh, honor knowing you both. And, Thanks for uh, giving this the attention it needs. It's really appreciated. Yeah, well, thank you for, for your work. And thank you, Norm. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.